Hi everyone, Brennan here. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to thank you all for listening and let you know that we have a follow-up episode planned where we'd love to answer your questions about water in the West, the work that Trout Unlimited does, or really anything about water and conservation. If you have a question, please send it along to ww101 at tu.org. That's ww101 at tu.org. Also, Sarah's pulled together some great companion articles for each of our episodes, and you can find them all at tu.org slash ww101. Again, tu.org slash ww101. And now, I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, welcome to Western Water 101, where we talk about the history, future, and issues of water in the Western U.S. I'm Sarah Porterfield, Water Policy Associate for Trout Unlimited. I've lived all over the West, from growing up in California to college in the Pacific Northwest to working as a raft guide in Utah, and now living in Boulder, Colorado, where I work on connecting federal policies and programs and on-the-ground projects with TU. And I'm Brennan Sang. I was born and raised in Michigan, uh, but spent about a decade in Montana. And like a lot of Easterners who headed West, I was struck by how different our relationship to water was in Michigan. Uh, compared to the high desert of Yellowstone country. Here at uh, TU, I'm the digital director, and I've ended up uh, reading and publishing quite a bit of content about water in the West and our efforts out that way. But I don't really have the historical, political, or scientific background to really truly understand all the issues. So uh, Sarah and I have been talking through uh, the history of water in the West um, from conflict to collaboration, and we're gonna continue talking about uh, some of the ways we worked on moving from conflict to collaboration out, uh, out that way. So today we uh, we have a guest uh, who will come and join us. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, yeah, Paul? Yeah, today Sarah? in a little bit we'll be talking to Paul Burnett, who is Trout Unlimited's Utah Water and Habitat Program Lead. He's based out of the Wasatch Front uh, north of Salt Lake City. And he's going to talk to us um, about a particular project or series of projects that he's been working on in Chalk Creek uh, near his home uh, in the Wasatch Front. And he'll, he'll give us a really valuable and interesting uh, deep dive into the Kind of on-the-ground project work that TU does in the West. Yeah, and this is, I think, through this one, we're going to talk a little bit about the kind of work that we're we are doing on the ground. You know, um, in the previous episodes, we've talked about what uh, the defining features of the West. Um, walked through the history of water in the West and kind of gotten up to the point where we, as a country, started doing these big water infrastructure programs, these big dams, these big sort of uh, water moving. Uh, interbasin diversions. I'm, I'm learning some terminology. Uh, and um, and I think to kind of illustrate that, we're going to talk through um, both kind of our philosophy and, you know, how we're, we're trying to move again to from conflict to, to collaboration um, and give a couple of examples of what we've done on the ground. In our last episode, as you said, we talked about the shift from conflict to collaboration, right? That there's um, a wider range of voices of stakeholders who are at the table now. It's not perfect yet. Um but we do have an increasing number of decision makers and stakeholders and water users at the table, tribes, um, first and foremost, uh, environmental in uh -huh. interests, et cetera, are, are far more involved than they were 
you know, 30 plus years ago. Um, and, and with this bigger table, we've seen a movement towards uh, uh, more collaboration and a willingness to, to sit down and figure out, you know, what's kind of the best portfolio approach? How do we take all these diverse interests into account uh, when we're thinking about water in the West, um, rather than this, you know, whiskeys for drinking waters for fighting mentality that paints, you know, all water issues in the West as um, conflict and conflict only. That's, you know, that's not really the reality. Right. And I think we we talked last week about the arguments over the best use <laughs> of water in the West. And I think uh, and we and you called out the two words in there, uh, best uh, and use. Right. And so I think that part of the founding idea from moving from conflict to collaboration is to try and come up with uh, sort of new definitions for best. Right. And new definitions for use, because what's best for what may be best or what uh, what people in agriculture may see as best for them may not necessarily be what people in recreation think would be best. But if we kind of shift that a little bit and realize that this is a resource we're all using and we want it to work for everybody, you know, then we have a new best to strive for. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what TU is really good at, right? We're really good at these on the ground projects that are the win, 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 win projects, right? That um, right. don't put yeah. agriculture against recreation or against the environment, right? Or vice versa, however, you know, traditionally it's it's been perceived. Yeah. Um, but that these kinds of uh, projects that will, um, like Paul's that we'll talk about today, really do benefit, you know, all sectors and increase water security for all water users, benefit habitat and the environment, right? And, and we know that um, when we take care of that, the fishing gets better, right? Um, if it's a big enough creek right. to go boating, the boating probably gets better too. You know, there's more of a yeah. uh, community resource to, you know, go hang out and picnic by or, or swim in a creek or a river. Um, and, you know, potentially that also benefits um, municipal supplies as well. And of course, you know, not every right. place or every project hits every single, checks every single box, right? It <laughs> depends on geography, depends on the right. need, et cetera. But um, what these on the ground projects that TU does really show is how all different stakeholders can come together to find these benefits for all the water users that are involved. We keep kind of downplaying that whiskeys for drinking waters for fighting uh, line, but it really does illustrate how much we've shifted mm -hmm. from that, right? I think we, we keep we, we, we keep bringing it up to say that yes. it's not the case. <laughs> and I, I think that uh, the talking through some of these, both the, the ideas that are driving this sort of collaboration and a couple of these projects, I think it'll become kind of clear what the way we've been trying to approach this over the the past several yeah, years. Yeah, and I think one of the ways that we can start to talk about that and to create a bridge from our last discussion um, about the kind of rise of large scale infrastructure in the 20th century, and then also, you know, how that shifted to have more voices at the table and move a little bit more towards collaboration is to think about what we mean when we uh, use the term infrastructure, right? Last time we talked yeah. about these, um, particularly in the Colorado Basin, uh, we talked about how these really big dams and reservoirs were constructed in this construction in the 20th century of this kind of plumbing system, right? Um, uh, right. That is, is, you know, not good, not bad, but it's a system that we have. Um, but in order to answer this question of, you know, what is the best use of water in the 21st century, uh, I think one way that we can get at you know, these kinds of win-win-win uh, solutions, the multi-benefit projects, the kinds of work mm -hmm. that um, benefit all water users is to think about how we use that term infrastructure and to start to expand it. Yeah. 
So last week we talked about, yeah, like these big dams and big plumbing systems. So what have we expanded that to include? Because it, it seems like we're not, um, we're not throwing up those giant dams uh, at the rate that we did in the past. Um, and, you know, while we, I think there are still some, you know, uh, transbasin diversions planned uh, that people are, people are working on, that doesn't seem to be the norm to the sorts of projects we're, we're working on, both to you and, you know, uh, anyone working in water yeah, right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, an example of how we can expand uh, the definition of infrastructure is to include in that definition uh, natural infrastructure, right? I'm using the term to define the term, um, but natural infrastructure yeah. can be called natural uh, distributed storage. It can be called nature-based solutions. It's a really big field, and I am not a hydrologist. I am not like a, you know, restoration tech. So Paul, I think, is going to be able to fill us in on the, you know, more sciencey aspects of this. Yeah. Um, but uh, what natural infrastructure does is use or restore natural hydrologic processes to um, help uh, with environmental restoration, aquatic restoration. Um, it can, these are very location dependent um, benefits that you get out of each of these projects, but kind of the laundry list of things that could happen from these is, as I understand it, again, not being an expert in this field is, you know, you right. can have um, natural water storage, which is recharging shallow aquifers, right? So there can be more water okay. held higher up in streams where it's potentially less susceptible to evaporation, right? Um, and kind of creates uh, mm -hmm. that, that reservoir in a way that we don't, it, part of it might be underground, it might be um, part of a restored wetland, right? But there is this reservoir of water, it doesn't look like what we traditionally think about as a reservoir with like a dam and a, you know, big bucket behind it. Um, but that there are these ways of storing water higher up in watersheds. Um, that right. can also help um, restore or reconnect uh, streams to their floodplains that have historically, um, because of, you know, it could come up from a whole host of reasons, but the extirpation of beaver throughout the West um, in the 19th mm -hmm. to 20th centuries, um, it could come from overgrazing, not grazing, grazing can be used as a restoration technique, grazing can be really good, but overgrazing in some places, yeah. overgrazing, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. uh, mining, a whole host of other kind of disturbing activities can cause um, streams, creeks to downcut and uh, become a steeper gully, which means that as okay. water flows, flows faster, um, it doesn't, uh, the water doesn't connect to its floodplain. So it doesn't, mm -hmm. instead of um, spreading out and slowing down, um, the water channelizes further and erodes further. Sorry, the dog is right. upset. Um, and yeah. erodes. <laughs> you, well, you kicked, I kicked him, him out of the room. Uh, yeah. He kicked him out of his room. That's, <laughs> uh, I understand. It's fair. Yep. <laughs> but as <laughs> the um, stream uh, down cuts further, right, it can't slow down, spread out in its floodplain. So it erodes even further. Um, and it moves faster. It increases potential for flooding um, with that because it can't it can't stop kind of and pause. Um, it can interrupt right. or disrupt or, or degrade water quality because it's eroding much faster and carrying more sediment downstream, etc. I've heard a lot of conversation about the benefits of returning sort of channelized uh, 
and ditched streams to their original location. And it's got a sort of a similar thing where when we've moved these streams into straight lines, they move really fast and the water doesn't have a, it doesn't really have an opportunity to sort of sponge into the, into the surrounding areas. But by slowing that back down, you know, putting it back in its original meanders, um, not only does it hold more water, but it slows the movement of that water down so people that are grazing can rely on that that flow, you know, more more consistently than they would have been able to if that water just shot straight through all of their property uh, in a in a straight yeah, line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so things like um, yeah, restoring those meanders rather than as you said, you know, that straight straight line channelized stream. Um, mm-hmm using techniques like artificial beaver dams or beaver dam analogs to uh, mimic, uh, it's be called beaver mimicry, to mimic what beavers do. Okay. That can help slow the water down, right. spread it out. Um, and that those also have, you know, all these projects also have site dependent again, of course, um, potential benefits of not just storing water, not just, you know, slowing down floodwaters, um, not just reconnecting streams to their floodplains, but also this can help, uh, the timing of later season flows, there might be more water later season because there's more water held in the peak runoff up higher in the drainage that then has the chance to release uh, more water later in the season and probably likely at a colder temperature, which could be beneficial for uh, for fish species species. Right. And so this this sort of um, changes the storage location. It, it, it seems like it does a couple of things. Like it, it, in addition to what we've talked about, it also sort of diversifies the storage locations and moves them higher upstream. Um, while having a similar impact to what a, what a larger holding might do, but, but sort of spreading it out, which is, I think diversification is, is generally a good thing, right? If, if you have a, a failure in one place, you don't have a failure in, in all of the other ones. Yeah. And you get, you know, all these other attendant benefits, site dependent, right? You could have, um, there's been some studies done that, you know, show that uh, the creation of these or the restoration of these wetlands and these meandering streams and floodplain reconnection creates um, refugia for wildlife during wildfires. These areas don't burn, mm. um, potentially could act as fire breaks, right? Which is, um, I think, particularly at the forefront of everyone's mind after the catastrophic fires that the West saw uh, in the, over the past right. year. Um, and uh, post-fire, it can also help um, keep sediment from running off and, you know, degrading water quality downstream. It can help with flooding, et cetera. So there's, there's so many benefits that come yeah. with this kind of, with rethinking the idea and the term infrastructure, right? It doesn't just has to have to be what we traditionally call gray infrastructure, right? Canals, like gray, okay. like concrete, right? <laughs> um, reservoirs, canals, yeah, that kind right. of stuff. We mm-hmm. can think about natural infrastructure as ways to, um, to do, um, uh, restoration uh, in watersheds and that have benefits for, you know, the aquatic community, the environmental um, uh, community, but also have these benefits for uh, traditional water users like irrigators and cities as well. Yeah. And it, in addition to sort of diversifying where we might be holding water, um, it also really would require a d- diversification of techniques as well. Like whether we're holding water or slowing water down, you know, what we're what we're doing in a, a limestone creek in Montana is going to need to be significantly different than what we're doing, um, you know, somewhere 
somewhere in California or in, or in Utah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a few different, we have all sorts of different kinds of restoration projects all over the, the West and all over the country, really, here at TU. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. There's all different kinds of techniques and scales that can be applied for these kinds of um, projects. Um, so a couple of examples, and again, we'll have Paul to give us more of an in-depth look at uh, Chalk Creek in Utah. Um, but one example of uh, low tech process based restoration right this is, um, you know, I don't want to use the word simple necessarily but um, but low tech kinds of techniques um, yeah. is in the golden trout wilderness in California, where mm. um, TU has been working at a larger regional scale, larger geographic scale to implement all sorts of different techniques that can do this uh, kind of restoration and natural infrastructure work. Um, so this could be, you know, uh, BDAs, the Beaver Dam uh, analogs. Um, but they're they're using all different kinds of techniques over a wide, a large area uh, to try and restore a, a series of streams in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, whereas, as Paul will talk about, geographically, the Chalk Creek project is smaller, um, but it still uses a range of techniques. Yeah, well, what other sort of arrows are in our Yeah, there? so I think some other examples of uh, that I know of for these kind of low-tech process-based are, you know, creating um, riffles using uh, woody debris that can slow water um, and create ha increased habitat for trout and for other cold water species. Um, you know, there's things called Z-dike structures or other kinds of like mm -hmm. log, uh, log jam kind of structures for lack of a, a better term, um, that can again right. help, you know, slow down that water, um, reconnect it to the floodplain and have all these other kinds of, uh, benefits. And then on the other, um, end of that scale of kind of what kind of tools might we use, um, Right. Uh, TU has a project in Montana um, on Nine Mile Creek where um, the system had been so degraded by plaster mining that these kind of low-tech process-based rest restoration techniques weren't possible to get the system to a healthy uh, place again. Um, right. So in uh, in Nine Mile Creek, they had to get the heavy equipment out, right? Like the bulldozers and the backhoes and all of that to actually re-engineer yeah. the river environment, like you were saying, to restore those meanders, right, from a channelized stream to take this kind of corduroyed environment of, you know, hills that were, I don't know, big, nine, 10 feet, probably more, I can't yeah. remember the exact number, um, and reset the creek so that those kinds of then come in with those kind of low tech solutions and, and let the stream uh, heal itself from there. But there's a whole scale, both regionally as well as, you know, how much intervention do uh, we need to do to kind of reset a system. All right, and we've got a, a wonderful video on the work we did on Nine Mile Creek that we'll we'll put in show notes or in the, the, the blog post and, uh, and larger piece that accompany that accompany this this podcast as well. Really, um, actual experts talk about that rather than me. <laughs> right, and it's it's really impressive to see that stuff. You know, um, one of the one of the great things about working for TU has been to go around the country and kind of to be able to see those things. Um, but I often get there when they're done. You know, uh, so it's neat in that video to see sort of that process, see the before and the, the, the during and the after. And um, I was also lucky enough to, uh, there's a, there was a dam removal project right here in Traverse City where I live. And they uh, pulled out uh, a, a couple of dams on the Boardman River. 
And it was amazing to watch, one, to watch this lake drain was, was pretty fascinating. You know, it was a lake out by a nature center. We, we would go out there and walk with, walk the dogs all the time. But to watch this, uh, this lake turn into a river valley slowly, you know, cause they didn't let it out right away. It was, you know, the whole summer it kind of, kind of kept coming down. Um, and then to watch these engineers rebuild a trout stream and now to walk the bank on that stream you can walk it and see where they decided they wanted to put habitat mm-hmm. where they where they thought you know and I can I can see these guys with the uh, pencils and sketchbooks thinking about you know and, and the fish mm-hmm. will hold here you know and we'll have you know great uh, great aquatic insect habitat here and we'll have you know we'll get these uh, uh, mucky spots over here for the the big hex mayflies that we have have up this way and it's a uh, it's really fascinating both to see, you know, the, the before and the after, but the, the during is, is also mm-hmm. fascinating. So if you ever get a chance to go out and see one of these restoration projects or, or help out, there's, there are often opportunities to help out in these local projects. Um, it can be really, uh, really eye-opening, both from a angler's perspective and from a conservationist perspective. Yeah, I started perspective. with TU about a year and a half ago, so I had, you know four-ish months on the job before the pandemic hit. Uh, And so I've only gotten in one short field visit to Wyoming um, last fall, but I'm really hoping this summer that I can actually hop in a car and get on a road trip to go visit these sites that we work on and, you know, whatever stage they might be at of, of um, restoration or, or, you know, and if it's in a traditional kind of irrigation infrastructure project, I'm really excited to get out there and see what we do. I always feel like I'm, you know, tooting my own horn when I when I talk about this, but um, it's it's just really cool the work that we do, both you know all across the country, and to see the the scale of work we do as well, right? Like so, we do a lot of work at the national level, um, but then also seeing things like what we've done uh, in Wisconsin's driftless mm-hmm. area, you know that, and so much of that has been mm-hmm. um, a lot of you know local folks getting in there and improving these little streams. Um, yeah, I think it's amazing. I think we're in a unique place where we've been doing this for you know, many, many years as an organization, and we've been doing it across the country. And I think, I feel like we're in kind of an exciting time as, you know, we start to redefine best and use out in the West, right? I think we're doing that kind of everywhere as well. It's not quite as pressing where it isn't so traditionally Mm -hmm. arid, but I think we also have this great ability to share these techniques now, like the ability, um, to look at what these people are doing in the driftless and think about how it might be able to uh, help, you know, small creeks out west or to look at, you know, what uh, people are doing out west and think about how we might be able to apply that to some some eastern streams. It's a it's pretty fascinating, this this switch and this big focus on uh, collaboration. I think it's been really, really productive. Yeah, and this hasn't happened just at the, you know, on the ground project level. We, as we'll talk about in the next couple of episodes, particularly the next one, I think we can talk about how we see this expansion of um, movement towards collaboration and the expansion and kind of redefining of these terms at different levels of government as well, right? From not just on the ground projects, but we'll talk about next week. uh, you know, the Bureau of Reclamation's Water and Energy Efficiency Grants Program and their Water Smart Program and how that is becoming uh, more and more adaptive and responsive to the 21st century by including things like natural infrastructure. For this part of the episode, we'd like to welcome Paul Burnett to talk about some of the restoration projects in Utah. Paul, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, I'm Paul Burnett. Uh, I work for TU out of Utah. I direct our Utah Water and Habitat Program here in the state, and uh, I've worked for the for, worked for the organization since 2011. 
and uh, have spent most of my time up in the Weber, Weber River Basin, which is up in northern Utah, uh, coordinate a lot of our uh, habitat restoration work and our fish passage uh, restoration work up there. And we wanted to talk to you, Paul, about your work in Chalk Creek as part of the Weber River Basin and some of, some of the restoration uh, work that you've done there. And this is uh, part of our larger conversation about how TU does on-the-ground project work, and in particular, um, BDA work, Beaver Dam analogs, and other sort of natural infrastructure kind of work. Um, so you can, can you start out by telling us about Chalk Creek and the Weber River, River Basin? Yeah, so Chalk Creek is one of the major tributaries to the Weber River. Um, Weber River is the, the third biggest um, tributary to Great Salt Lake, uh, which is uh, one, one of the largest inland lakes um, that doesn't drain to the ocean. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of our work up in Chalk Creek has been ongoing for, for several years. Um, Chalk Creek is actually a pretty unique location if you think about Southern Utah and all of our national parks and the Red Rock. Um, Chalk Creek is kind of like a little Southern Utah up and up in the Weber River Basin. Um, it's, you know, kind of characterized by, by that same or similar geology. Um, it's, uh, it's also really unique because uh, unlike most of Utah, which is, is public land, it's like 95% privately owned. Yeah. And, um, and so that's like a really a good opportunity for us to work with, with uh, private landowners up there. Um, also kind of uniquely about Chalk Creek is it um, supports uh, one of the last remaining really intact native fish communities. So um, there's not, there's a few non-native fish that, that occur there, but for the most part, you know, the Bonneville cutthroat trout is the, the primary uh, species there that, primary trout species, but there's also a whole range of native fish that uh, the whole population is intact. So it's pretty, pretty unique in that way. Can you tell us a little more about uh, the Bonneville cut, cutthroat trout and what makes that fish so important and the other uh, native fish there? I, we have said this on this podcast before, I know nothing about fish. Uh, so <laughs> for, for myself, at the very least, can you tell us a little bit more about why this, this particular fish is so special? Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's special for another, for, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the Bonneville cutthroat trouts are state fish in Utah. Um, it's a subspecies of cutthroat trout. Those, uh, there's, uh, like 15 subspecies of, of cutthroat trout that are really defined by the, the drainage basins, basins that they occur in. Um, and the Bonnevilles, um, you know, they, you know, based on their name, they occupied the Bonneville basin. Um, you know, back about 40,000 years ago uh, when there was a pretty large inland lake there. And, you know, from what we understand, those fish uh, occupy the lake, which is which Great Salt Lake is, is a remnant of, and, and also moved into a lot of those um, tributaries uh, like the Weber, like the Provo, like the Bear River. And, um, you know, those, those fish are, are migratory. They're kind of like salmon uh, and they have some really interesting, unique uh, uh, adaptations to, to local waters. Uh, they can sustain um, higher temperatures than other trout, uh, which is pretty unique for, for, for uh, cutthroat trout. They get big, people like to catch them. And, um, you know, if you go back to the, the history of the settlers here, um, a lot of our, our local communities were supported by, uh, by, the, by those fish. Uh, those fish uh, were a really important food source uh, for, for several years uh, while um, our 
agricultural industry became established. So a lot of history between behind those fish. Um, they were actually thought to be extinct back in the seventies um, until a lot of biologists uh, were working around the state and started discovering these small pockets of, of Bonneville cutthroat trout still existing. Um, and uh, so it's kind of a, kind of a cool success story, the conservation behind these fish, but also just the history and, and the fact that people like to catch them. That's interesting. Uh, I, I wouldn't have thought of Utah as a place that was dependent on fish stocks while it was uh, starting to be settled. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the interesting stories behind the Bonneville cutthroat trout, just the overfishing um, was, became a huge issue. And, and what ended up happening is because we out, outfished these stocks of native fish, what do we do? We brought in brown trout and we brought in rainbow trout and, and kind of replaced these cutthroat trout. And, um, you know, Chalk Creek is really unique because it's this place where <laughs> when we stocked those fish, they didn't take, and we still have this completely intact native community. Oh, wow. So they, so yeah, so I guess it, it's not still intact because it was left alone necessarily, but it's it, it's still intact despite yeah, it not being left exactly. alone. <laughs> yeah, that's great. What are some of the um, restoration projects that you're working on in Chalk Creek and its tributaries, and what are some of the challenges that you're facing up there that you're hoping to address through these projects? Uh, well, one of the, the, the biggest challenges that we're trying to address up in Chalk Creek is is habitat connectivity. So basically allowing those fish the opportunity to move between the main main stem habitats in, in, the, in the main creek up into tributary headwater habitats that are really important for spawning. Um, as I mentioned earlier, these cutthroat trout um, move or migrate a lot um, and they move to find food, they move uh, to find suitable temperatures and they also move for, uh, for spawning habitat. And, um, you know, tying into that one of the big challenges uh with with this uh watershed is most of the most of the tributaries and most of the waters um on, in this watershed are, are kind of mid elevation and um that really puts them at pretty high risk uh to uh the climate change we know that headwater like really high elevation headwaters are probably going to be fine with you know a couple degrees uh increase in temperature but it's these mid-elevation tributaries that are really uh, critical and really sensitive to those small changes in, in snowmelt and um, extend, extended um, long periods of, of heat in the summer. And so, uh, you know, what we're really trying to focus on in Chalk Creek is trying to uh, allow those fish to, to be able to adapt to uh, climate change by moving uh, up and downstream through, through that network, that stream network. Um, and we'll, we did a we did an assessment of all of the water infrastructure uh, in the in the watershed back in 2013. We looked at road crossings, irrigation diversions, um, on-channel ponds, anything that potentially could affect uh, fish movement. And we found about 30 or 40 um, barriers to fish movement uh, in this in this watershed. There's about 100 miles of stream habitat. So you chop that habitat up into smaller pieces, and you know if you have a, a, a an extended drought or, uh, you know, some sort of a fire or a flood event that wipes out a population, we can, we can lose portions of those populations uh, forever. So, um, so what we did was we took that barrier information and overlaid it with uh, where the cutthroat trout are existing and where the key populations are 
and have been really prioritizing um, reestablishing those movement patterns by rebuilding road cross road crossings or or uh, working with ag producers on uh, rebuilding their irrigation diversions to make them more fish passable and also to improve mm-hmm. water uh, uh, reliability for for their operations. So um, the other thing that yeah. we're really focused on is um, Chalk Creek, as I mentioned, is is uh, kind of similar to the southern Utah. So it's a kind of a sandstony type of geology. That means that it produces a lot of fine sediment uh, during snowmelt and during uh, rainstorm events. And so we so we've been working with several uh, agricultural producers up there, uh, ranchers up there, on um, improving grazing practices just through rotational grazing and off-channel water and that sort of thing. So that's, you mentioned, um, you know, road crossing, and you also mentioned uh, ag diversions. Uh, what are the primary uses for the water that are going through Chalk Creek? Is it, is it primarily agricultural or recreational or, or what, do, what do folks use the Chalk Creek's water yeah, for? Yeah, so Chalk Creek is a pretty small stream, uh, probably about 25 feet wide. So it's not a huge, not a huge okay. waterway. Mm-hmm. Um, the valley bottoms are mostly used for, uh, for producing hay, uh, for, to, mm-hmm. to raise for, to, for cattle. So it's, it's all basically alfalfa. Okay. It's kind of a range of flood irrigation, uh, some sprinklers. Um, but you know, they're all small water users. So if you go down, if you go down the stream and, and walk two miles of, of stream, you're going to cross, you know, you're going to interface with like four irrigation diversions because every individual landowner has their own little water diversion. Um, and some of right. them are in better shape than others. And so, um, you know, one of the things we're doing is, is just trying to, um, where we can trying to consolidate, put those together into like, instead of three diversions, one nicer one. Um, mm-hmm. but also just, just making sure that the, the fish are, are able to interface more effectively with them, move upstream and downstream through those. With these fish that move a lot, would they find themselves up in those diversions regularly? Was that is that a was that an issue? Yes, that is that is another issue that we're uh, we're trying to address. Um, and whenever we're rebuilding uh, water infrastructure, we're trying we're at least considering screening uh, fish screens to uh-huh. tr- to try to prevent fish from moving into into the irrigation canals. One of the things that's really fascinating about fish that move a lot is um, well stepping back, if you think about irrigation diversions and there's been a lot of studies on fish moving into irrigation diversions and, and kind of estimates of, you know, like, right. you know, maybe 3% of the fish fish that move through the syst- stream system end up getting sucked into an irrigation canal. Um, okay. On its face, it doesn't seem significant, but when you think about the, the unique life histories and the unique movements of these fish where they're moving longer distances, the fish that move longer distances mm-hmm. are interfacing with more and more of a larger number of those structures. And so they're at greater risk. Right. So yeah, maybe it's only taken 3%, but if you have a 3% loss and you're interfacing with 20 of them, then that, that right. really adds up to a significant impact on, on the native fish population. So yeah, we're, we're looking at that. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, the suitability of screening uh, irrigation diversions. Um, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, being able to sustain, um, the screens themselves and being able to work with, with, uh, the, the landowners and, and actually, uh, sustain a large number of screens. It becomes a, becomes, um, 
uh, a big labor issue as well. Yeah, between my kids and my pets, keeping the backdoor screen uh, maintained <laughs> is enough trouble. I can't imagine like submerging one in water and then trying to trying to keep exactly. up with it. Yeah. Um, can you talk about Fish Creek and your restoration work there? It seems like what we've talked about in this episode and with the accompanying blog post is the different scales of restoration work, everything from using, you know, a bulldozer or backhoe to using volunteers to put in a BDA. Can you talk about the different kinds of projects that you've used in Chalk Creek or Fish Creek? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, Fish Creek is kind of unique. It's, it's, it's a tributary uh, to Chalk Creek. And, um, you know, several years ago, I was working with one landowner up there um, on uh, some, some ponds and I kept going over this road crossing on Fish Creek and um, this is just some, some other history behind uh, this Chalk Creek drainage is, is uh, there is some past oil and gas development up there, like back in the seventies. Mm -hmm. And when they, when they put in these oil locations back then, they, you know, they, <laughs> uh, they they put in a lot of culverts that were not really considering um, fish movement or or watershed processes. And so this right. one culvert that I'd I'd go over I don't know probably a hundred times. Um, it had like forty feet of fill over the top of the culvert. So like basically spanning the whole oh, valley bottom with with just dirt fill with the road and a little hole, yeah. little you know five <laughs> foot culvert <laughs> draining the draining the stream. Well. Over time, um, it started under the stream started undermining the culvert, and then we in 2011 we had a fairly large um, snowmelt event, and it like basically collapsed the entire culvert and that entire road. So like we had four, 40 feet of just dirt just get you know being washed into the stream. Yeah. Um, so that in and of itself was pretty was pretty terrible, but. Um, that also cut off access to a, a bunch of properties up there, um, uh, a bunch of, of ranchers um, who couldn't access their properties anymore. <laughs> and so that yeah. is kind of interesting because that that event um, brought into brought into the same room a bunch of families that had been, you know, conflicting with you that with each other for for many years, and they actually had a common um, common problem that they had to solve. Um, and we were kind of in the middle of that. We, we were helping them uh, try to find a solution for their failed culvert, uh, rerouting the road. And what we ended up doing was we built a bridge uh, as a team effort. And then, of course, we were still stuck with this. There's about a 10-foot long section of culvert still holding this six-foot drop in place. And so, um, so we were still stuck with this problem. And um, so we, we yeah. worked with them and uh, came up with a design of actually rebuilding the stream channel, stepping it down in one place and stepping it up uh, below mm -hmm. the culvert with uh, basically con re reconstructed about 500 feet of stream channel there. Uh, we rebuilt um, four riffles. We, it's kind of engineered, but at the same time, like it's kind of what we had to do. Um, huh. Right. So that's a, I think that's a pretty good case of pretty hardcore restoration i'm not i'm not a huge fan of doing that if yeah. we don't have to uh -huh. um but, but that opened the door to a whole range of discussions with with um several of the, the landowners up there and we started talking about you know improving irrigation diversions mm -hmm. and um so we've been working with one family on that and that's again that's kind of some hardcore engineering but also um bringing in fish passage uh 
uh, to the discussion as well. Um, but then we also started talking about, you know, sedimentation, downstream sedimentation caused by, you know, kind of decades of um, uh, grazing management um, that, you know, um, wasn't necessarily that great. Uh, they're, they're in the process of changing. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're like, well, you know, there, there are a whole range of solutions that we can, you know, work with you on. Um, so part of that is, you know, developing off-channel water so all their cattle aren't stuck in the, the valley bottom, but um, right. But also because of the, the fact that cattle have been down there for, you know, for decades, um, the stream channel is really degraded and has downcut over time. And so uh, one of the right. solutions that we've been um, piloting up in Fish Creek is, is the beaver dam analogs, which is a, a process-based restoration is another uh, name for it. Basically what we're doing is we're uh, bringing in a bunch of volunteers and we're uh, essentially building a bunch of really, really small, like 10 inch tall, um, uh, man-made, uh, I, I don't want to say dams, but they're, they're basically artificial beaver dams, uh, made with branches. Yeah. And, uh, we drive posts like four foot tall, uh, three, three inch diameter, um, wood posts into the stream bed. And then we just weave okay. branches in between those and, hmm back up the water it doesn't block fish movement fish can move through those sticks so we're not like building these big ponds right. but <laughs> we're slowly helping the stream rebuild um rebuild itself and, and aggrade what we call it uh, stream aggradation which is basically building back up um and that brings a lot of benefits to yeah. to the system um it you know restores a lot of that shallow groundwater we've actually been doing a lot of research associated associated with our, <laughs> our work and so We've been measuring shallow groundwater depths and um, and storage mm -hmm. uh, and also stream temperatures as well. And so just by by driving more of that water into the shallow groundwater and raising the water table, um, we've actually uh, dropped the stream temperature a little bit. Um, and we're also storing um, uh, water in, in that shallow groundwater for uh, later into the season. So we've actually got data that shows that we're, we're storing that data or storing that water right uh, for a longer period. Wow. And have you seen an effect on stream flow then later into the season or what does that look like? So I don't think we have enough um, beaver dam, dam analogs installed <laughs> in the stream to really detect that change. I, like I, we've been able to detect really localized effects. I think, you know, we've installed probably about 40 uh, beaver dam analogs um, <laughs> throughout the stream, but it's like a seven mile long stream. So um, that in the grand scheme of things, I think the watershed, uh, watershed processes are still, uh, more significant, right. um, than, than our, than our localized efforts, but, you know, kind of big picture, we are trying to, um, advance a few more larger scale projects that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to install more, you know, like a hundred or 150 beaver dam analogs throughout the stream. Um, and then I think at that point, you know, that we might be able to start seeing some detectable changes in uh, stream flow and, and even stream temperatures. I love, I love that story. I love um, looking at a, you know, going back to the, the culvert that was there, right? I love going back to a, a well-meaning attempt to, to get some, you know, to get some fossil fuels out, right? Uh, with that, that didn't pay attention to this thing. And then, you know, this critical piece of infrastructure fails, but then, brings people together to fix it in in the right way uh or at least in what 
what we're hoping is the right way, uh, and in a in a more con- in a in a in a in a with a larger view, I guess, um, and also talking about two families that you know had been at odds coming together for that too. I think that that's those kind of failures and the the sort of pain that that aging infrastructure is ca- is causing really gives us these great opportunities to bring you know all sorts of stakeholders together, whether they're families or different you know uh, organizations or you know governmental agencies to do that sort of con- conservation work. And I think that's something that, that Sarah and I were talking about earlier. I think it's something that that yeah, TU that's does really, really interesting. Well. I think one of the one of the things that came out of this whole effort with with the culvert was um, you know this kind of gets uh, kind of gets in the weeds, but a little bit. But the but that really um, catalyzed a lot of the the families there um, with cooperation with, with us and, and a couple of the agencies, we, we actually got into the same room and developed a, a, a coordinated resource management plan. <laughs> so wow. uh-huh. I think that's like NRCS lingo. Um, but, uh, but basically, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's this plan. And we went through this whole process of identifying, you know, what are the, what are the really important um, uh, values in the watershed that we're trying to conserve? Um, what needs to be done? What are the, you know, what are, you know, the resource concerns? What are the issues that we're trying to address? And it's really interesting to, to, to see, you know, at a grassroots level, the, the, the landowners there recognize the value of, of the fishery. And I think, I think cutthroat trout was the, was like one or two, uh, like the top priority wow. among, among ranchers, you know, which mm-hmm. is, you know, not a story that you hear every day. Um, but, you know, also really important up there was, you know, water quantity for, you know, for their consumptive use and, and you know, sustainability of the rangeland and, and of their ranching. So um, it was really interesting that, uh, you know, it was really catalyzed by that project. And it was really just interesting to see, you know, how, um, how those projects do bring people together and recognize that, you know, a a single fish can actually be a catalyst. Like a lot of the funding that we got to to do the the fish passage work and help with the bridge was was fish related work, fish related money. And so, you know, if, if that fish wasn't there, you know, who who would have cared, right? <laughs> so, it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that ties in with something we've uh, a thread that's kind of pulled through uh, these episodes is this um, the question of how much water is there and how best to use it has remained the same for the past 150 years over the time of Euro-American settlement. But the the quantity of water, of course, is changing because of climate change. So there still remains that question of how much water is there. But we've also seen this shift in the definitions of best in use. Uh, and so seeing, you know, a, a, the cutthroat trout be number one or two priority, you know, speaks to that expansion of uh, the the uses of water that people value and then how, how that can bring people to the table to be collaborative um, partners in these kinds of projects. Yeah, I, I want to talk uh, for a minute about kind of go back to those BDAs uh, just for a second. Um, so you were talking, you, you talked about you putting them in at um, places where the stream bank had been, the stream had been degraded, uh, probably cows getting in and out of the stream, spreading the banks out and it kind of slow down. How do you go, how do you go about figuring out where to where to place those in those areas? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, so uh <laughs> the rule of thumb with with beaver dam analogs 
uh, is you don't waste too much time trying to decide where to put them. You just get them in. And, <laughs> okay. and that sounds, yeah. that sounds a little crude, but the reason why is, is because it is process-based restoration. We're trying to restore processes. We're not really worried so much about structure, um, about where they're going. Um, and, and that's the really important thing to, to consider with, with um, beaver dam analogs and, and, and process-based restoration tools is process right. does mean erosion and deposition and natural storage and, and understanding and making sure that like private landowners understand this and that uh, regulators understand mm -hmm. this is really important because one thing we have to be clear about is if we're going to be, if we're going to put any sort of structure that's, that's spanning a stream channel in place, that's going to mm -hmm. induce some sort of erosion upstream from it. Like the stream is going to try to work around right. that. Um, and so, yeah. so the really important thing to understand is that it doesn't matter where that goes. What's important is the fact that uh, we have a bunch of them in place. And so if we have erosion around one, then the next one downstream will, will be catching that sediment that, that's being generated from the, the, the first one. And, and that's, that's kind of the key with process-based restoration is, again, we're, we're, we're trying to facilitate that process of sediment transport um, and set, you know, mm -hmm. and, and natural depositional features and erosion. And that's really how that stream rebuilds itself is, is from its own sediment. And so, and that's why really bringing to scale these types of strategies is really important because you throw in a couple of beaver dam analogs and you get an erosion around it. It looks like a failure. Well, maybe the failure is just the fact that it wasn't brought to the scale that it needs to be brought to in order, for, in order right. to have the, that watershed effect. So you um, you talk about process-based uh, restoration, and uh, well, I certainly know what that means, and I'm sure Sarah does as well. Uh, could you uh, could you could you uh, give us a, an overview on on what uh, what process-based restoration? Yeah, I is? can get I can really get into the lingo. <laughs> I'm just okay. joking. Yeah, great. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. So process-based. So any anywhere you are on on the land is you're in a watershed, and you know, a watershed, mm -hmm. um, you know, is a place that collects water from, from rain and moves it downstream. And mm -hmm. whenever that happens, that water is picking up any sort of pollutants or any sort of sediment, or, you know, it's kind of coalescing into larger streams. And anytime you have a change in how much water uh, is added to a, a watershed, such as a big rainstorm or snowmelt, um, that downstream movement of water is going to take with it a sediment is going to take with it, um, all, all that stuff. Yeah. And so that's a, mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's watershed process. Like that's geology okay. essentially. I mean, that's, that's move that's shaping yeah. our land. And so, so basically what we're doing is we're using physics and we're using, you know, what the watersheds normally do. And we're, we're, we're basically trying to work with, with those with those processes. So those processes are deposition of sediment, uh, mm -hmm. deposition or erosion of sediment, um, uh, movement of water, uh, uh, groundwater and surface water, um, and even uh, establishing plants and vegetation. So, so it's all, you know, mm -hmm. it's all encompassing. And, um, you know, a lot of our approaches in the past uh, in even some current stream restoration 
approaches don't necessarily address effectively um, those issues of, of, of deposition yeah. and erosion. Um, or we think of erosion as a, as a symptom of a, you know, a, 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 a bad thing, right? Which may not right. necessarily be the case. I think just you talking about that and trying, you know, I'm guessing in those areas where the, you know, the stream is widened out due to, you know, the, the banks, the banks widening, um, that erosion is probably a good thing because it's digging the channel out. Am I, am I thinking about that correctly? Like erosion caused by those beaver dams is kind of the BDAs is or kind of, I don't know, scouring or, you know, pulling some of that extra, that extra oh, yeah, sediment for sure. downstream. I mean, that's, that's basically okay. nature shaping its own pathway and that's i mean that's that's what rivers have been doing for millions of years and that's probably the most effective way to actually restore our watersheds there are a lot of places where that's not possible and and that's where i think that's Mm -hmm. where we really focus on where it's appropriate to focus on the more hardcore type restoration strategies but you know when we're in these rangeland streams that's the ideal location to right. to let nature play its course and and to actually facilitate that process with things like artificial beaver dams um, that sort of thing and, you know and, and one of the one of the challenges is that there's some estimates that almost every stream had uh, large numbers of beavers in them at when you know Europeans settled mm-hmm. the west but that's not the case anymore and so that's really changed the flux you know how much water water and sediment has moved through those systems or, and how, right. how much it moves through the systems now. And there's a lot of cases where it's probably unlikely in the next 30 or 40 years that we'll be able to reestablish beavers um, effectively. And so, you know, that's right. kind of, that's, that's our intervention. You know, in a lot of cases, the long-term goal would be hopefully restoring that keystone species into the watersheds. But, you know, in or, until that happens or until the, the vegetation is there to support them, that's where we're inter- intervening with, with, things like beaver dam analogs. Can you speak to, I know that in Utah, zooming to another watershed in the Price River that uh, you and TUSU's use BDAs uh, for um, wildfire recovery. Can you speak to some of the benefits that come from that, that are, that are an outgrowth of those processes that you've described and how they can help with wildfire uh, mitigation, both before and after an event? Yeah, I mean, you can look at beaver dam analogs. You can look at a, a watershed as you know, how, how effective is that watershed at moving water downstream? And we want watersheds mm-hmm. to be less effective at moving water downstream, <laughs> right? If they're, if they're effective, then you have these, these huge torrents of water and flash floods and that sort of thing. And so that's what we see in a lot of cases after fires is we, we see that these watersheds, they, they're, they're scarred. There's no vegetation to slow water down anymore. And so we, we see these huge flood events um, that scour out these, these stream channels. And then that feeds back to more flood events that scour out stream channels even, even further. And so um, that's where we're using beaver dam analogs uh, for fire recovery is, you know, essentially we're just trying to just roughen things up and slow the water. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, it's just basic physics there. It's really, it's interesting if you just break it down to that, but um yeah, right. my colleague Jordan Nielsen has had has been really successful in working with partners up up in the Price River on uh, Miller Creek um, and and really restoring that extremely degraded stream system um, that was just basically wiped out from a fire uh, using beaver dam analogs. And again, the thing is, thing to consider is 
it's not just one or two, but it has to be hundreds of them. It, I mean, it has to be watershed wide and, and, you know, along the entire stream yeah. in order to really have that effect. And how long does it take to set one of those up? You said you, you work with a lot of volunteers, you know, can you go in and build one in an afternoon or is it, uh, what does that, what does yeah, that look you can like? Build, you can build about 10 in a day if you have a, a large wow. enough crew of people. Yeah. Um, okay. and the biggest, the limiting factor is the, the post pounder, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. which is, which is kind of a beast. Um, there's a whole bunch of different strategies. The, the one that we're using is a, is a handheld hydraulic post pounder. So it's like mm-hmm. 70 pounds and it's just like a jackhammer without the, you know, the hammer right. part. And, um, so basically right. what we're doing is we've got like three or four people try to get our most burly volunteers and they basically lift this thing up over their heads and, you know, put it over this post and then just the weight of the post pounder just drives the post down into the stream bed. Well, each beaver dam analog, you're, you're going across the stream. Uh, each beaver dam analog has about 20 of those posts, hmm. uh, in, in it. Um, in a line. Actually, it's two parallel lines of them. So yeah, th- that takes about an hour and a half probably to, to build one of those, but it's it's kind of exhausting work. Um, but we do, yeah. you know, we do kind of divide the labor up. We usually break up into several groups. We only have one post pounder. So we usually mm-hmm. have one crew on the post pounder that's actually building the, the structure, the bones of the BDA. And then we'll have other folks like cutting branches from uh, from like juniper is probably our favorite, <laughs> um, but cutting mm-hmm. branches and then putting those, weaving those uh, in between the in between the posts, mm-hmm. uh, and then another usually another group that's putting some grass mats and that sort of thing on, you know, kind of sealing up the cracks. And how quickly can you see changes in the stream after you put one or or ten of those in? You know, if you can get ten or twenty in over a weekend, you know, can you come back the next weekend and see an appreciable difference? Or oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's instantaneous. In fact, mm. um, I, I put together a, a time-lapse image of one of our, or time, time-lapse video of one of our BDA installation <laughs> projects. And you can actually see the water surface increase as we, as we build the beaver dam analysis. It's really cool. So wow. yeah, within hours, within hours, you, you actually see a perceptible change in the, the stream itself. Mm. Um, there's a little bit of a lag when you start, you know, getting further out from the stream, <clears throat> excuse me, from the stream, uh, with the, looking at the shallow groundwater, but within usually a couple of weeks, uh, that <laughs> we start seeing a, an increase in the shallow groundwater level as well. Wow. And vegetation changes. Wow. Is that something you see season to season or how long does it take for, you know, someone who, uh, maybe visited a couple of years ago to, you know, how long does it take for that person to see a difference? Yeah, vegetation is going to be a lot slower to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it also depends on what land management around right. the BDAs is as well. Um, mm-hmm. But even, you know, even up in Fish Creek, where we do still have some pretty extensive cattle grazing, um, those areas that were dry are are wet and are growing, you know, like rushes mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And, you know, that's actually trapping fine sediments during high water already. Mm-hmm. And so you can actually see you can actually see how that's how that's affecting the, the high flow and, and sediment deposition. Hmm. So it sounds like there's uh, not just putting the BDAs in, but it can also be part of a larger land management strategy to, you know, if there's ways to shift grazing patterns to help these areas uh, uh, rebound and restore themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the other thing with, with beaver dam analogs is, again, because it's process based and we expect some erosion to occur. Um, it's mm-hmm. really important for us to not just like put them in and walk away. Like that we, we have to make sure that we're, you know, kind of in it for a long-term commitment 
being willing to come back in your, uh, you know, subsequent years and actually rebuild the BDAs or hopefully, hopefully it's uh, a graded enough that we can actually do another set uh, to continue, huh. continue that process. Huh. Okay. Uh, so we would catch enough sediment or whatever, what have you that's moving downstream to actually build up to the, the top of the structure yep. you've put yep. in. In fact, that's, yeah. we've seen that up in, in Miller Creek uh, where they, I think they've actually done in a couple of places, they've actually installed another set of BDAs under their, their buried set. Wow. completely oh, segmented wow. in. That's what we want to see. Yeah, that's right. how you know it's working, I guess, if it's yeah. getting buried in sediment. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Paul, for taking the time to talk with us. This was uh, really interesting, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of people learned a lot about uh, process-based restoration. Um, not me, of course. I, I, I was You're the fully expert. aware, but uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's been great. <laughs> yeah, thanks yeah, for taking thank the you. time. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a really great chat with Paul. Those uh, those Beaver Dam analogs are really cool. Um, you know, I can't wait to get out and see some of those projects actually in person. And you know, I'm just now starting to think about travel, so uh, my trip out to Utah might be in my near Yeah, me too. I can't wait to get out to visit some TU project sites in the Colorado River Basin this summer. I'm really looking forward to being able to travel and to see our work happen on the ground again. Um, and this kind of on-the-ground work happens, as Paul described, in collaboration with local landowners, with agency personnel, both at the state and federal level. And doing this kind of work on these project sites really helps build support for for the larger scale adoption of these techniques at the state and federal level. And over the next couple episodes, we'll look at those, you know, kind of higher level, federal level uh, work that TU does that helps to support and inform the projects that happen on the ground. It's a cycle, right? That those on the ground projects inform the work that we do at the agency and, and, right. and you know, legislative level. Um, but also, you know, it's, it's kind of cyclical that those also then go back and support right. fund and inform the work that happens on the ground. Ooh, I feel like we're we're starting to pull some dots together here, so I'm excited for these next couple of episodes. Yeah, and the next one will specifically will look at how TU works at the federal agency level uh, with the Bureau of Reclamation mm -hmm. and their WaterSmart grants. Awesome. Great. Looking forward Talk to, to you then. Yeah. See ya. Bye-bye. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Please join us next week as we talk about how Trout Unlimited works with government agencies to advocate that the projects they fund increase water security, provide a positive environmental impact, and continue broadening the question of how best to use water in the West. Also, don't forget to send your questions to ww101 at tu.org. We'll talk to you next time.